What is shaking, everybody? It is a new episode of the Wind Up Podcast. I'm your host, Mike of MTGA Wines, and we are talking about inspiration today when it comes to wine and winemaking. Uh, before we get too far into it, I uh, hope you like the new view that we have. I've adjusted my home office a little bit uh, to make hopefully things a little bit more, you know, video friendly. We'll see. Uh, we also have, I mean, you also get to see all my nerdy artwork and stuff that's laying around here. Still playing with it a little bit. So if you're on YouTube watching this, you're going to see me probably fidget with things just to make sure that I'm, you know, got everything kind of lined up the way that I want. You get to see all my random stuff that I've posted around the home office now uh, versus the tripod that I was using that was simply not tall enough, basically. So we made some changes to the home studio here to hopefully make this uh, video experience a little bit better. Uh, speaking of which, thank you all so much for checking out our videos on YouTube, uh, continuing to support the podcast, to like, share, and subscribe. Please continue doing so. Um, it is really allowing us to kind of make some of these little improvements and changes and all that good stuff, and hopefully make a better show for all you to enjoy. Now, to get into today, today's show, we are talking about inspiration. And this was another one of those questions, very similar to last week's episode. This was another one of those questions that came up during one of our Q&As. And it was one that was interesting in the sense that, you know, we really do, many of us small producers consider wine to be an art form, right? We are looking for some way to kind of capture, you know, our style, our thoughts, our own kind of operations and how we go about, you know, using these grapes is kind of like this canvas to create this piece of art and this beverage that it ends up being turned into. And it, it's a little weird to talk about it in that sense. It's a little bit esoteric, but it's the honest, I mean, honestly, it's the way I look at it. It's the way I think many, many winemakers look at, it, especially when it comes to small producers, because you are looking for these subtleties and these interesting little things that make your art kind of stand out from the others, right? It's why for many, many people within and in and around Napa and other wine you know, industries and countries or regions, why we don't really view ourselves as competitors because everyone kind of has these different brush strokes that they use or different you know, formats that they use. You know, you might be into charcoal, you might be into acrylic paint, you might be into watercolor, you might be into Cabernet, you might be into Pinot Noir, you might be into Riesling, whatever the case may be, you're utilizing, you know, something within the same kind of ballpark, but still a very different, you know, style, still a very different canvas that you're working with when it's all said and done. Um, so that's really what we're going to dive into today is kind of where some of that inspiration comes. And we'll talk a little bit about it kind of personally, but also kind of on the grand scheme of the wine industry and, what people look for when they are, you know, getting a wine project started. Like, where does that inspiration come from? And then once you're in the throes of your wine business, you've been doing it for years or decades, where does that keep coming from? Like, how do you keep finding these new interesting things to do? Here, I'm going to adjust my camera just one more time. There we go. Perfect. That's way better. Nice. So this is, this is really kind of the, the starting point, is that if you are starting a new wine project, you know, you have to kind of have some starting point, right? There's got to be a wine out there or a winery that you've been to or a wine region that you've been to that is probably you're like, hey, this is in essence the competitive set. Like this is where we want to play. You know, we want to have 
this in the back of our heads at all times. Uh, and a great example of this, and I think I may have mentioned this in another show, um, but in case I didn't, there's a, a small producer that I love on the Sonoma side of things. Um, a great friend of mine works there. And his owner, in, in kind of starting up his wine project, um, his favorite wine was Colgan, kind of one of the you know iconic like cult wines out here. It goes for quite a few hundred dollars, a, quite a few hundred dollars a bottle. Really, really good stuff. Um, but that's like his benchmark of like this. These are the best wines, some of the best wines that I've ever had. I'm going to get into the wine business. I want to play in that ballpark. Now, it doesn't wherever you're starting, it doesn't have to be hundreds of dollars a bottle. But, you know, even if it's a $20 bottle of wine, whatever, whatever the case is, you kind of need that benchmark, right? Of Where do we want to play? And his argument, which I kind of appreciate, is we want to be the next Colgan. I'm like. Great. Do you want to be the next Colgan or the first you? Right? It's nice to have that competitive set and use that as like a backboard, right? And use that for that inspiration. But I am a firm believer that at a certain point, you're going to have to break from that mold and understand like, hey, you can't be the next Colgan if you don't have the same winemaker, if you don't use the same vineyard, if you don't use the same barrels, if you don't do the, have the same techniques. Like there's just no way for you to emulate that to a T. So at a certain point, you're going to have to adapt what you're doing to what you have. So you need to use that inspiration and then really just mold it into what you want it to be. That's about as simple as a take as I can give when it comes to starting a wine project and finding where that inspiration is. For myself, and having started with Merlot 14 years ago, there were a couple of producers that I'm like, this is where I need to play. And number one on that list was Paloma up on Spring Mountain. Uh, even though they may, they use a little bit of Cabernet to blend into their Merlot, I was making 100% Merlot, so we already had a stylistic difference there. But I understood like they are probably making, especially at that time and maybe even still today, making arguably the best Merlot in the valley. The juggernaut in the room was always Duckhorn, but because of how big they are and it's such a different style of production, I'm like that's not the realm that I'm going to be playing in. I'm not trying to scale up and compete with what they're doing with their Napa Merlot or their Three Palms Vineyard. That's not where I want to be. So let's focus on a small producer that I'm just that I love personally. But knowing full well that I didn't have Cabernet to blend, that I didn't know what barrels they were using, that I wasn't using Spring Mountain fruit, I'm like, okay, well I've got to take this Merlot that I've found and I need to adapt it and and really hone this in to be the one that it needs to be. Not try and create some, not try and make it into something it's not. So. You know, it, with any kind of art form, and I think many folks would agree with this, whether it's wine or painting or design in some way, shape, or form, that if you try and like force the issue, it ends up being just disjointed. This is kind of the problem with Merlot, actually, in general, is that so many people try and make it into something it's not. They're not making Merlot for it to be great Merlot. They're trying to make the cab lovers Merlot. They're blending a bunch of other stuff into it to make it something else. But they are saying, no, this is our great Merlot. I'm like, yeah, okay, that's fine. But this clearly is like that thing like it's it meant you're trying to make it into something else because merlot is not that popular and that's the way that that has been for basically my entire winemaking career is that you know merlot is always folks have always been trying to make merlot into something that it's not which is why it hasn't been that great for so long and it's kind of a little bit on this comeback tour you know because it's just taken people time to really understand like what do we need to do to make this merlot awesome 
on its own and not have it be disjointed. So, you know, if you, and kind of going back to my initial examples, like, all right, you're making wine. You know, my buddy and, and the uh, boss that he has, they're in Sonoma. Are you going to tr really try and compete with Napa Cabernet? Or do you want to be like the best Sonoma Cabernet? And do you want to lean into what your vineyard and your property has to offer? So there's also that. You know, if you're in a completely different county, you got different soil types, you got different weather you're dealing with, like, you're nowhere near where some of those vineyards are. You're going to have to adapt no matter what. So it's okay to have that inspiration and that benchmark and say your competitive set of like, here are the wineries, here are the brands or the styles that we want to be in the mix with. That's a great starting point for inspiration. You got to have something, right? You got to have something to kind of get the fuse going, a spark that lights the fuse that gets that thing moving. And that's really, I think, the biggest starting point for most wineries is, and, and so many places, especially when folks are new to the wine industry, they're buying a property or they're starting their own brand. They're like, where, where do we want to play? Like, how is it, how do we want to make, leave our mark on the wine industry? I mean, shoot, Brittany did this with her Blair Payton label. In 2021, she wanted to start making a little bit of rosé and kind of a light-bodied red. Her inspiration for these two wines were Provence, the south of France for rosé, these Grenache-based, really beautiful, like salmon pink, very light, airy rosés. And then all, and then for the red was actually more inspired by like lighter Italian reds, like Sicilian red wines or Beaujolais, uh, these light, very quaffable, you know. Uh, you know, patio pounder kind of red wines that can be a little bit chilled down, really easy going. But she knows full well. She's like, we don't live in the south of France. We don't have access to those vineyards or that climate. Uh, same thing with Beaujolais or, or Sicily. Like, we just do not have what they have in terms of their wine growing region. So we need to take that inspiration and say, hey, how can we adapt that and create this Blair Payton label inspired by some of these wines that we really love? And that's the same thing, you know, she did. She said, hey, this is kind of the ballpark I want to play in, but we're going to have to find vineyards and areas and varieties within Napa or Northern California, since she's getting her fruit from Clarksburg, to really cater to that style. So that inspiration's there, and that's what you use as a starting point. And then from there, as you continue to kind of dial in that winemaking style, you're able to kind of figure out all right, now what can we do? Where, what are the tweaks we're going to make to really take what these vineyards, this climate, these soils are offering and push them or guide them in the direction of these wines that we love? Because they're going to be different. You're not going to be able, you can get pretty close within a decent ballpark. But, you know, realistically, if you're making wine to be wine, you're not using a bunch of additives and extracts and other things like doctor stuff up, you're going to have to, you know, just be within the ballpark. You're not going to be able to make it exactly like a provincial rosé or a, you know, fleury or brewy, you know, from Beaujolais. Like, it's just not going to happen. You're going to have to kind of understand that when it comes to that inspiration, that there are certain roadblocks that if you're not using the exact same, I mean, you're not going to be able to create you know, a charcoal, charcoal, you know, piece of art, you know, on a canvas with a, when you have when all you have is acrylic paint like that, it's going to be very different. Right. You know, you might be you might have the same canvas, but now you're working with two completely different sets of materials. There's no way that, you know, there might still be a beautiful piece of art, but it's not going to look like charcoal. It's, it's going to look more like acrylic. 
I mean, there's probably an artist out there doing just that is like making certain a certain medium look like something else. But I haven't seen it. So I'm just going to use that as an example. Just run with it with me, will you? That'll be fine. Now, I guess in my in my kind of opinion of this, you know, that initial inspiration is pretty easy to find because there's probably a wine or a region. Oops. Oh, God. I'm still getting used to my standing desk and I talk with my hands a lot. I apologize. That was probably really loud. That's my bad. I'm still very much getting used to this. I like it quite a lot. I don't know why I haven't had a standing desk before. This is pretty rad. Uh, but I still am like banging into stuff. So if you hear like a loud crash, I promise I'm fine. I will try and mute that in the recording as best I can. Um, anyway, uh, now, once you've kind of found that inspiration, it's, uh, in my opinion, that's pretty easy because you ha- you do have like these wines, these regions and stuff that you've either been, you've consumed some of the wine, you kind of understand, oh, all right, this is the ballpark. It's a kind of like a line it up to knock it down situation. I think it gets a little tougher when you've been making wine for a couple of years and Brittany's gone through this a little bit as we were talking about Blair Payton is that we started to iterate. That first year was kind of that, I don't want to call it a rough draft because the wines were great. They're, they're you know, we're, we're selling out of them like they're, they're, they've done really well for themselves. So it's not like it was like this trial and, oh, it didn't really work, but the next one's going to be better. It was, it was a great starting point. But the next year, it's like, okay, now we understand the vineyard a little bit more. We understand the growing season, the soil type. We know, understand this, how we want to operate in terms of going from grape to bottle. And let's make some tweaks. So we make some adjustments and we take that inspiration that we have. And we start, you know, making those subtle changes to get where we want to go. And that's what we've done for the last two years with Blair Payton. And what she's done specifically with Blair Payton is let's tweak some of these things. And we still want to use that inspiration as like our benchmark. These are the wines that we love. This is what kind of this production is modeled after. But we need to make sure that we are working with you know, we're working with Northern California grapes here. We're not working with grapes from the south of France or from Sicily or from Beaujolais. Like, we're going to have to cater to what these grapes need to be pushed that direction. And this is when a winemaker, in my opinion, kind of becomes more of a guiding hand. You're, you can't just shove a peg screw through a round hole and make it work when it comes to winemaking. If you're really going to make great wine, you have to understand when you harvest, how you manage that vineyard, what barrels you're using, how long you're aging it, are you filtering it? Are you doing like all these little things that really contribute to what is eventually your house style and what you as a producer are known for. And you have to start making those subtle tweaks and adapting from that inspiration to get there. And that's how a house style is really created, in my opinion. It's it's using that inspiration making those subtle tweaks to make it work for you, the vineyards you're using, and going from there. Because you can play in that ballpark. You're never going to be on the same base as those other producers that you're inspired by. You're just not. You'll be close, maybe. Maybe. But you're going to have to try and make your own way in some way, shape, or form. But when you start making those tweaks, I mean, where does that come from? You know, how do you decide, hey, you know what? We need to use more new oak versus more neutral oak. Hey, how do we, why do we use more stainless steel versus, let's say, concrete? You know, where are, where is that coming from? And this is where I think it starts to be a little bit more variable because, and and many of you that have tasted with me in the cellar, especially in the recent months, 
have, you know, you've probably seen the different barrels we're using for some of our white wine, uh, some of the things we're doing with our Diversum Cabernet, which is very, very different than what anyone else is doing in Napa with Cabernet these days. There's a lot of things that we're kind of playing with. And it really comes down to just, I mean, in essence, an R&D department. It's setting aside enough wine to just, all right, let's throw this out the wall and see if it sticks. Like, that's kind of the mentality. And some of that comes from just, you know what? I know there's a friend of mine using acacia barrels. I've never used an acacia barrel before. I, here, it might be really, really great for a white wine program. Let's let's throw some uh, let's throw some of our Pinot Gris into an acacia barrel and see how it works out. And that's exactly what we did this year. I was like, all right, let's just let's throw this at the wall, and it's really yummy. It's very very different than what we've ever done before. We're still kind of ironing out exactly how it's going to fit into the program and if we'll use that barrel again next year. But it's like, all right, like that's kind of cool. Like we've heard like good things about this barrel. Let's go ahead and see if we can't kind of factor it into what we do. And it's just kind of this trial and error. You know, the same thing was true with our Diversum cab of saying, hey, let's not use any new oak on this Cabernet. Let's use just neutral barrels. Let's use some stainless steel on it as well and just keep it really bright, really fresh and just do something different. And it's worked out really, really well. Will it be something that we continue for the long term? Hopefully with both those things. But even if it doesn't, it's like, all right, cool. That was a great little bit of inspiration and motivation to do something different. And we threw it at the wall. If it sticks, great. And if not, on to the next thing. So there are those little things where you're just kind of talking shop. You're hanging out with friends, colleagues. You're tasting wines uh, from other places, other producers. And you're like, oh, that's really interesting. I wonder if that's something we can incorporate into our own program. So once you get into winemaking in a few years, that's and you're a few years in, you're really kind of building out you know your house style it's there and now you're making some of these subtle tweaks to that inspiration you started with to really create you know your own wines that's what um that's when these you know just you're out having beers with your colleagues and you're like oh that's a really interesting thought i had never thought of it that way before and now the gears are turning uh, this happened to me actually with the i mentioned the the versum cabernet uh that we're releasing uh, because it is a Napa Cabernet that's all in stainless steel and neutral barrels. There's no new oak on it whatsoever. And we bottled it after a year, right? I mean, typically your Napa cabs are at least 18 months, if not two years or more, you know, in barrel. Like it's going to be a while. You know, this is a very different thing. And there's this gentleman uh, actually in the south of France, outside of Aix-en-Provence, uh, that I had the pleasure of meeting uh, through a, a mutual friend who actually worked for him uh, years ago, uh, really where he actually got inspired to get into the wine industry himself. It was, it was an amazing trip. And he was doing a lot of this. his opinion. This was the most beautiful opinion uh, on like new barrels that I had ever heard. I never heard anything like this before. And he's like, I hate using new barrels. In essence, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but I hate using new barrels because, but I have to, because I want them to be used once or twice. He buys new barrels out of necessity, but, but he prefers using once used barrels and twice used barrels and so on. He, that big oak flavor, he's like, that's it's fine, but it's too much. It's too heavy-handed for the wines that I want to make. We're going to use a lot more neutral barrels. We might use some clay amphoras. We might use some stainless steel. But, you know, these new bar this new barrel thing, it's just not what I want to be doing, but I kind of have to be in order to get to where I want to go. So those new barrels that he buys are very much a stepping stone for the rest of his program, which I just never, ever thought of before. It's something that I've factored into my own winemaking quite a bit because I love the once-used barrels and twice-used barrels that we have in our cellar and how they factor in to the rest of our wines. But I'd never quite 
put like pen to paper and understood why until he said that. I'm like, that's it. That's exactly it. That's exactly why I do what I do. And it got the gears turning. I'm like, okay, we've been doing this with Merlot and like our red blend, but we haven't really gone to this like, hey, what if we did a Cabernet in mostly neutral and stainless steel and, you know, do kind of take what this guy is doing in the south of France, you know, where you normally think of lighter kind of very, you know, porch pounder, you know, reds and, and, and rosés and make like this bold kind of more intense red, but just a little bit more restrained. It doesn't have this big, oaky, intense, you know, put on your smoking jacket and have a cigar flavor. It's a little bit more like just bright and poppy. I'm like, man, that's he that's hella interesting. I really want to see if I can do that. So in 2022, last year, I was like, shoot, we're actually, you know, we have a little bit more Cabernet than what we need for our production, to be completely honest. We had a little bit of extra juice laying around. I was like, all right, well, here's my chance. Let's throw this, let's throw this at the wall and see if it sticks. And I got to tell you, like, I'm in love with this wine. It's so different. It's so unique. I'm so, it, it's, it's, I don't like to toot, toot, beat, beat my own horn a lot. I don't like doing it, but I'm very proud of where this wine ended up because it is just so different. And it was a great, great way to take this inspiration from this, you know, amazing trip that we were on and be like, that's, and talk to this guy. Just, we're just talking shop. It was, it was actually a really, we were doing a wine cruise, a bunch of our club members and, uh, and some of our fans. And we're, you know, in Ex and Provence doing this tasting and myself, uh, my good friend, David Tate and, uh, Sylvain, the winemaker at this property, uh, Domaine Rochome. I'm probably butchering the name because my French is terrible. Um, outside of Ex and Provence, but the wines are fantastic. Look them up. They're outrageously good. Um, we, you know, he's showing us around the property. It's built in essence on like an old Roman aqueduct. Like it's amazing history, uh, you know, in this little, little place where he's at. Um, it's him and his wife and his daughter, you know, it's, it's a small family, you know, family run operation, like really, really cool. And it's funny cause he's kind of showing us around and then David, he and I would just like scamper off into a corner of the cell and leave, like he was leading the tour, but he would just leave the rest of the group. He's like, Hey, you're the winemakers. We need to go talk about this thing. And we just run off and we'd be gone for 10, 15 minutes or so. And then we'd like, want, like wander back, like talking shop and hanging out and everyone. And Brittany told me later, she's like, you guys were just like little kids in a candy shop, just like running around like, Ooh, that's really cool. Ooh, that equipment's really cool. Ooh, this is the barrels you're using. We were just like engrossed in the winemaking conversation. And that's today where I think a lot of inspiration for myself comes from is talking to other winemakers, talking to other producers, talking to other farmers. Uh, actually earlier this morning before even recording this podcast, I was out talking with uh, a farmer that, uh, actually knows me and our family, but I've never actually met him in person. Uh, but we're just talking shop about, you know, vineyard work, how this harvest went, how last harvest went, you know, I'm trying to, I'm definitely, my Achilles heel is the farming side of things. I'm, I know enough to be dangerous, but I could certainly use a lot more knowledge and be, a lot more engaged in the farming side of things when it comes to winemaking, uh, something that I'm actively working on. And in talking to this guy, it's like, okay, like here's my laundry list of things I need to do just on the farming side of things to understand a little bit more about what's going on out there, to be able to speak a little bit more intelligently about it and use that inspiration to be like, all right, like here's the next thing that I got to try and achieve. So whether it's the winemaking or even the farming side of it or, you know, whatever, you know, form of business you're in. There's always kind of this, if you're there and talking and open to it, there's going to be these little bits and pieces of inspiration that you can garner from anybody to do 
a little bit more or get a little better at what you do or kind of broaden your scope of knowledge and be able to grow within your position and what you're doing. You know, that's really what I think a lot of us in the industry use this inspiration for. We talk a lot of shop about the business side of things, about the winemaking, about the farming. And all of us are kind of, we're all very inquisitive. Um, even shoot, last night ran into um, another winemaker, uh, Jade, who's the winemaker for Ladera Vineyards. And we're just, you know, same thing, sitting at the bar, having a beer, catching up, hadn't seen each other in months, maybe even a year or more. And we're just talking shop, like how, how we're doing things, how last harvest ended up, how this harvest ended up. And we're just sitting there just kind of like, oh, man, it's really cool you're doing that. Oh, is this how you're doing it? And it's just like you're just kind of going like back and forth, back and forth. And, you know, maybe he took something from my side of the conversation that he's like, oh, I wonder if this is something that I could consider or and vice versa. You know, I do the same thing, you know, as we're, you know, we're kind of these inquisitive minds who love to understand kind of what other people are doing in that way. If there's something like, huh, I wonder if that's something that we could do for ourselves and like kind of implement, or maybe there's something, there's some little nugget in there that I can kind of pull from and say, Hey, if we integrate this into our own program, you know, maybe this is a great way to enhance it. And maybe it's not, maybe this acacia barrel that I bought for our white wine this year doesn't work out. Maybe it doesn't, maybe it just changes the profile of that wine too much. And if that's the case, is what it is. We move on and we we go get the next canvas and we start throwing some sort of color or artwork onto it the next year. I mean, that's really how I view winemaking is that, you know, every season is kind of the canvas that we're working with and it's our job to harness that or those are the materials we're using. And then the finished wine is in essence the canvas. That's like, hey, this is what we're able to do given the season, the circumstances, the fruit that we're working with. And now here's the finished piece of art for you to enjoy at your leisure, you know? Um, so it's, it's really interesting, this idea of inspiration, kind of where it comes from. Cause I think, I think it makes sense for a lot of folks that it's like, oh yeah, it makes sense that there's some like competitive set or some winery specifically that you're trying to like model yourself after. But I think like any art form kind of going back to the beginning, uh, you know, is you have to find, you know, what you are inspired by and then, understand that if you just emulate that you're just pretend you're kind of pretending a little bit <laughs> you know and, and for some people there's nothing wrong with that uh, when i was working for uh, boise family estates uh, in their marketing department uh, this is in their you know early 20 teens so red blends are just kind of on the rise i think apothic red had just come out you know obviously a big production i think gallo makes that wine can't remember uh, but obviously a big production and they were looking at that and saying, hey, this is a, a growing segment of the wine business. We need to jump on. We want to be a comp you know, competitor within this segment of wine sales. How do we do that? And it was a specific like we need to jump in and we don't need to recreate Apothic, but we need to create something that plays in that ballpark and maybe takes away some market share. <laughs> you know, so there is that. There is, there are certainly businesses out there, and we all know this as well, probably depending on, you know, what line of work we're in, but it certainly happens in the wine industry, is that if there's someone out there making a killing, maybe you can jump on their coattails, or maybe you can supplant them with something better, quote unquote, you know, depending on what that might be. Um, or you see, you know, the mergers and acquisitions happen that we talk about a lot on this show, and you say, hey, you know what? 
Rombauer is making the best oaky buttery Chardonnay. Let's go buy Rombauer. That way we can command that section, that segment of the market, you know, <laughs> in the case of Gallo, you know, since we mentioned them already. Um, there are definitely ways to go about it. Like, you know, we are inspired to have more market share. So therefore, let's go buy the winery that's kind of got this cornered in the Bay Area. Awesome. You know, there are other ways to go about it. Uh, but it is interesting on that big business side of things as well is that that inspiration can be, you know, just to compete or steal market share or, hey, they're, you know, Rosé. I mean, shoot. I mean, we taught, we have certainly talked about, you know, how popular Rosé has gotten over the last seven or 10 years. The amount of people that have been inspired to start selling Rosé because they have, you know, all this red wine that they're sommelier. It's, it's, they're just this bleed off juice that they would probably make a little bit of Rosé of, but otherwise just dump down the drain or sell it as bulk juice to somebody. And now they're like, oh no, let's keep a few hundred cases, couple hundred cases, whatever. And we'll just make Rosé out of it. And now you have, you know, wine shops and grocery stores and liquor stores that are just flooded with rosé, you know, because everyone was inspired to add a rosé to the lineup because market conditions were telling us like, hey, people want rosé right now, so let's make a bunch of rosé. You know, that kind of stuff does happen, like just on the business side of things. You know, it could be the case that, you know, there is just an opportunity there and you're like, all right, let's see if we can't jump on board this train before it leaves the station and really get after it. So they can come from that side of things as well. Um, it can also come from, and this is really how my own winemaking style evolved, of seeing what other people are doing and saying, I want nothing to do with that. I mean, when I started making my Merlots in 2010 and into 2011 and 12, I was so disenchanted with big Napa Reds. I wanted nothing to do with that style of winemaking. I wanted to be different. I always blame my inner punk rock kid of like, hey, let's just be different, you know, you know, kind of fight the power kind of mentality. But sometimes inspiration comes from that, is that you're, you, you kind of end up being that like counterculture movement, uh, which is why I started with Merlot, which is why I ended up making Riesling and Pinot Noir. And those were the first three wines I had in the lineup. You know, I didn't start making Cabernet really until 2017. I made a little bit, ow, I bumped my desk again. Son of a nutcracker. I'm really going to have to get used to like my spatial awareness. I'm going to like take a step this way, I think. Maybe like right there. That way I stop like running into things. Ugh. The things you live and learn when you start recording your own podcasts and shows. It's so much fun, you guys. So much fun, you guys. Also incredibly embarrassing when you almost knock over the tower of your PC. Um, anyway, you know, you do have these moments where you're like, hey, this is where everyone else is playing. To hell with them. Let's go a different direction. And that's really where I was in starting my own wine project. Because, like, everyone else is already playing with Cabernet. Everyone else is already playing with Chardonnay and Sauv Blanc. Like, let's go find our own sandbox to play in for a little bit and carve out something for ourselves. So, so inspiration, even coming from, I don't want to say it's coming from a place of, like, negativity, but maybe, like, pessimism, I guess, where you're just disenchanted with what kind of the status quo is. It's like, all right, well, let's go back to, you know what we like and kind of flip this or flip this on its head a little bit. Let's go for it. You know, let's do that. You know, I, I certainly, you know, even now that now that I'm making Cabernet in a little bit more volume, I definitely model my Cabernet winemaking style out of what was happening in the 80s and the 90s in Napa. I don't look at the 2000s or 20 teens at all when it comes to inspiration for making Cabernet. I just don't because that, that was the period of time, the last 20 years where I'm like, 
it's just this isn't it. I don't think this is it. This is not stylistically what I want to be doing. Um, it doesn't mean those wines aren't good. It doesn't mean that there's not great stuff to be enjoyed from those years of, you know, wines that have been made from Napa. But at the same time, I'm like, that's not that's not inspiring to me. These wines just don't quite scratch that itch enough. I need to find another way. If I'm going to be really making Cabernet, I need to find another way to be inspired. Because there's just, like, the last 20 years just ain't doing it for me. But when I drink these wines from the 90s, even today, when now they're 30 years old, moving on to 30, 25, 30 years old, they're beautiful. They're amazing. They're so different and unique compared to, I think, what is happening today. And maybe that's my nostalgia getting the better of me, but hell, I'll take that as inspiration as well. I'm totally fine with that. So this inspiration thing can come from so many different avenues. That's kind of the point that I'm trying to get to. And realistically, as an artist, in my humble opinion, you just need to be open to it because you're not ever really sure where it's going to come from or how it's going to happen. Actually, go into that Aix and Provence example of this gentleman who is making these really cool red wines and how I've adapted it to what we're doing in Napa. Um, you know, we're on this wine cruise. It's it's basically a party the whole time. It was an amazing time. Hopefully some of you can join us on the next one. We should be doing another one in 2025, actually. Amazing time. And to be completely honest, I was, I'm was i like, I know I love these styles of wines. I'm so excited to see this place and, and what it means to my really good friend, you know, but I never, I never really expected, I wasn't like going there looking for inspiration, right? You're just, I'm, I'm here along for the ride. I just want to taste some good wine and hang out with, you know, these amazing people that came along this journey with us. But as I'm wandering through that cellar, I'm like, like I, all of a sudden, like the gears were just turning I, immediately. It's just, I wonder like, what if, like all of a sudden it just happens. So it's kind of like, it's almost like motivation at a certain point. Like I, I don't really believe in this is going to sound weird i don't really believe in motivation like it's something that is it's it's something that you need to like get through the day or accomplish certain tasks or whatever but i I think it's something that's kind of manufactured by yourself like it's something that you need to create and there are times when it's really really hard to create like i don't want to get off the couch and go to the gym i want to sit here and watch you know a movie or some stand-up comedy or the game i'm going to have a beer and just relax Finding that motivation to go to the gym can be really tough. Finding the inspiration to do that can be really, really tough. You know, but at a certain point, you just have to be open to it and be like, all right, if I'm willing to do this, then I know that I'm going to feel better once I actually do it, right? Because none of us want to go to the gym, but we all know that once you get through that workout or that hard day's work or whatever the that task is that you don't want to do, you feel good at the end of it. Was it a chore? Did you not like doing it? Probably. But you feel better now that it's done. And I feel like inspiration kind of follows that same trend where it's, you're not necessarily always sure where it's going to come from. It might come from something internally. It might become from something somewhere else. That's, you know, some sort of external force coming at you. But when it hits, you're like, oh, I wonder. And then as soon as you start to play with it, and implement certain things or adapt or change or just, you know, throw something out the wall. Now the excitement comes and you're like, oh, okay, this is, maybe this, it didn't work quite the way I thought it was going to, but let's like tweak this and adjust it. And and now you're tinkering and now you found, you know, not just the inspiration, but the motivation to try and do something a little bit different and unique and continue down 
you know, your own path. I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know if that makes a whole lot of sense, but that's kind of how my brain wraps around, you know, those, those couple of terms. Um, I think they very much go hand in hand. And it's one of those things where you just have, yeah, you just have to be open to it, you know, because if you're just closed off and saying, hey, this is how we do things, bar none, like don't ask any questions, just put your head down and grind. I mean, there's something to that because if you're known for a certain thing, you might as well, you know, be known for that thing. But even if you look at, I mean, shoot, take like a Coca-Cola, for example. You got your Diet Coke, you got your Coke Zero, you got your Vanilla Coke, Cherry Coke, so on and so forth. Like they've iterated, they've changed, they've adapted. There's been some sort of inspiration to compete within that market of soda and do things and try and, you know, make other flavors and fun things and do interesting stuff. Even at the top level, like you see these giant corporations and company companies doing this, you know, you know, why can't that be, why wouldn't that be the case for smaller guys as well? Especially when it's more of kind of this artisanal, you know, artisanal, artisanal. I always fuck up that word. Artisanal. I think it's artisanal, right? Artisanal product. That sounds dumb. I'm saying it dumb, aren't I? I'm definitely saying it dumb. Artisan, more artisan products. Sure. Why not? We'll run with that. So, you know, it, it kind of, it, it's, there's inspiration to be found everywhere. It's just a matter of being open to it and saying, hey, you know, how, how are we doing something? How does this impact our business? How does, is this something that we can factor into it? Is this like a whole new segment and something else that we're going to expand and, and do like this whole other new thing with this like new flavor, you know, so to speak, uh, or whatever, you know, it's, it's really an interesting thing and it just kind of ebbs and flows and comes and goes and you really just have to be ready to take advantage of it when it shows up because you never you're never really sure when it will happen and uh that's it's kind of the beautiful thing about i think inspiration it's something that you just you can be going about your day-to-day life and all of a sudden you see something you're like huh that's uh that's interesting let's see if we can't run with that all right well thank you so much for tuning in it has been another episode of the wind up podcast we'll be back next week be sure to like share subscribe do all the things thank you so much uh, check us out on YouTube, check us out on the Instagram, the book of face, uh, also the social network formerly known as Twitter, just at MTGA wines on any of those. You'll be able to find us. Take care. Have a great rest of the week. We'll catch you later. Ow, I hit my desk again.